January the 28th in 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger launched. And maybe you remember it. Uh, it launched and then 73 seconds into its flight, uh, tragically, uh, the shuttle broke into pieces, killing all seven of the crew on board. And the cause of this disaster was the failure of a seal. And there were some small margins. There had been unusually low temperatures that time. Um, but if, if the ground crew had thought that there was any concern... Sorry, keep on going. If the ground crew... I'm trying to move. If the ground crew had thought... If the ground crew had thought... <laughs> If the ground crew had thought, we're good. I thought there was any concern, um, they would not have let the launch go ahead. Um, they, they would have stopped it, but they did their checks, it passed the checks, there were no concerns, but there was something that was wrong, and it was a small thing that they didn't notice, they didn't think was important, but something so small caused something so tragic. And NASA did not make the same mistake twice. For us this morning, our eternity hangs in the balance. And, and this passage this morning gives a warning of something that might seem small to us. It, it might be the kind of thing that we would dismiss as not anything to worry about, but it has the potential to bring us catastrophic failure. And so as we come to think about it, I want to ask you to consider two different conversations. Two conversations. Here's the first one. This is the extreme conversation. I want you to imagine the last conversation that you have in this life, your deathbed conversation. Now, it might not be on a deathbed. And that was a situation for Kyle and his wife, Brittany. Last year, they were on an aeroplane, and it was announced that there had been engine failure, and they were to brace themselves ready for a crash landing. Um, and in that moment, as the plane shuddered and shook, Kyle turned to his wife and said to her, what is your comfort what would you answer in that moment not, not just in a nice comfortable Sunday morning but in that moment the moment before your death when somebody says what is your comfort now of course none of us knows what we would say or, or quite how we would respond in such a situation uh, but as we sit here today and think about that moment what would we want to answer what is your comfort that's the first conversation. The second conversation, uh, uh, let's think about um, a Wednesday, uh, any Wednesday, a Wednesday morning, mid-morning, uh, just an ordinary, arbitrary moment, the kind of moment in your day that is so ordinary that by the end of the day, you've forgotten it. If anybody asks you at the end of the day, how was your day, you will never mention this moment. It's so dull. Um, we all have those moments, don't we? Lots of them. Um, imagine in that moment, somebody interrupts you and taps you on the shoulder, asks what you're doing. If you, it's so boring, you can't even bother to explain it to them, but you try to. And then they say, in this moment, this ordinary, everyday, dull thing you're doing, what does Christ mean to you? What does Christ mean to you now? What would your answer be? The everyday activity of life. What, what would you want the answer to be? What does Christ mean to you? Two conversations. Uh, come with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. This is a passage which comes at something of a turning point in this letter. And Paul is writing to these churches in Galatia, and he is um, earnestly trying to put them straight. In verse 7 of our passage, he, he describes them as running a race. A race that they started strongly, 
Paul came, he told them uh, the good news about Jesus Christ and they believed and they were put on a course of trusting Christ as they ran. And then Paul says, you have been cut up. Uh, those of us who drive will know the experience of happily driving along and uh, minding our own business. And then suddenly out of nowhere, another car pulls in front of us right into our braking distance. We get cut up and it throws us off. Paul says, that is what happened to you in Galatia. Uh, He says it happened because they were visited by certain people who told them things that put them off course, that tripped them up in their Christian journey. So Paul writes a letter to help them see what has happened and to help them keep trusting Jesus. Now the point of the letter we're at is is a turning point. As, As Paul moves on from confronting what is wrong, confronting the false teaching, and he's beginning to move on to show some of the practical implications of living all life trusting Jesus. If you look at the end of verse 6, it sums up this transition. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, Paul's been saying to them, you are saved by faith and faith alone. It is only faith. It's only faith that counts for your salvation And now he's beginning to move to develop by saying, this faith alone that saves is never alone. This saving faith works its way out in a life of love. And we're in that kind of turning point. And as we move on in the letter, we will see more of the outworking of that expressing itself through love aspect. Also, today's passage has one kind of big idea, really. It's a sandwich passage. You look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And then if you look at the end of the passage to verse 13, he says again, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Freedom. That's what Christ wants for you. We saw a bit of this last week. Uh, That freedom, uh, as Paul speaks about it, freedom is the removal of every barrier, it's the bringing down of every obstacle to our eternal happiness. But Paul is saying, Christ has done everything, everything needed to give you that freedom. So what now? Now that you have that freedom, what should you do with it? You should stand firm. That there is so much, so, so much out in the world, so much that lies within our own hearts that would burden us with slavery. And Christ did not set us free to be crushed by a yoke of slavery. He set us free to be free, not a pretense of freedom, not self-created nonsense, but the removal of every barrier to your eternal happiness. He set us free to be free. You were called to be free. So now he says, stand firm in it. How do you do that? How do you stand firm in that kind of freedom? Well, that's what he's going to talk about in the rest of the letter. And he starts it off. How do you stand firm in that freedom? Well, the message today is this. To stand firm in this freedom, you need to understand that there are only ever two ways to live. There are only ever two roads to go down. There are only ever ever two options put before you. There are only two options. Uh, when I was um, studying engineering um, in, an, in an advanced fluid dynamics class, uh, the teacher introduced a topic like this. He said, we're going to look at a new topic. It, it is a, a topic of huge importance. It, it's, it's somewhat vital, really, that you understand this topic. It's important and it's extremely difficult. 
But the good news is this. A book has just been written that explains it really, really well. But the book's been written in Chinese. Then he said, but it's okay. Because fortunately, the book has just been translated into Russian. That wasn't... That's a bit of a disheartening introduction, really. Um, and, and if you have something of a similar feeling as we look at this passage, you, you might well be in good company. Um, this passage is hugely important, eternally important, really. And Paul is going to explain something of eternal importance, not in Russian, but by talking about circumcision. And that might be about as relatable to us as being given a book in Russian. Um, but let's bear with Paul and let's see what he says. Verse 2, mark my words. It's important. Everything else he said is important, but this bit, mark my words, he says. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. There are only two options put before you, and Paul says these are the options. It is circumcision or it is Christ. That doesn't sound to us necessarily like the only two options, does it, as we sit here this morning. And we might think there are other options we want to put in there, but Paul says it's these two options. Let's listen to how he explains it. Uh, so far in his letter, Paul has been holding back a bit, really. Uh, he mentioned circumcision back in chapter 2, but he's not really dealt with this subject head-on until now. But this was the question, that the, the burning questions for the churches in Galatia was this. This is what they're talking about, what they're arguing about, what they, what they talk about as they, they, I was going to say go down to the pub, I don't know if they had pubs in Galatia, but you get the, this is what they talked about. Should we be circumcised or not? That was their question. Should we get circumcised? A circumcision was introduced um, 2,000 years before Galatia. Uh, God called a man named Abraham. God made massive promises to Abraham, promises of salvation, of restoration, of, of redemption for all the nations in all the world. And as a sign of the promises, every male child was to be circumcised. It was a, a badge of belonging. It, it was to be a reminder of God's commitment to do everything he said he would do. So all of Abraham's male descendants had been circumcised. And then Paul goes to Galatia. And he speaks to people who are not Abraham's descendants. And he says to them, the promises that were made to Abraham have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you can share all those benefits by trusting Christ. That's what you need to do. And they did. Then Paul moves on and other teachers come in and they say, you can share all the benefits of God's great promises by trusting Christ and you also need to become one of Abraham's descendants. And the way you become one of Abraham's descendants, you need to be circumcised. So this is their dilemma. That they think the promise is real. They think there is a, a hope of eternal happiness in the imperishable bliss of the world to come, free from the, the sin and the sorrow and the drudgery and the agony of this age. But what must they do to benefit from the promise? Paul says, believe Jesus. And the other teachers say, believe Jesus and... And also, you need to get circumcised. Who is right? Well, Paul is very clear, isn't he? Verse 2. If you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. There are only two ways. It is circumcision or Christ. You can't go two directions at the same time. You go one way or the other, and there is no third way. Why is that? Well, verse 3, he says, 
I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. That, that path of circumcision, it is the way of, of, of trying to achieve a perfect moral obedience to everything God requires. That's what the path is. Paul calls it in verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law. Let's, let's try and understand what Paul's saying here. I'm going to put a little diagram up. The kind of framework of, of thinking that we have. And this is what we have. We have this present evil age. Paul spoke about that in chapter 1. This is what they understand. This, this present evil age, it's under sin. And there's a place where there's death, where there's sorrow, where there's agony. But there is a promise of an age to come, an age of eternal happiness. And between these two ages stands an assessment, a divine assessment. Now, all the Old Testament looked forward to this. It would be a day when every soul will give account to its maker, the judgment day. And on that day, to be justified means that the the assessment result of that day, the verdict that is given, is a verdict of righteousness. To be justified is on that day for the, the decision to be about your soul, to say there is in your soul a moral perfection according to all the standards of God. And those who pass that assessment like that, they are justified, declared righteous, and they gain access into the promised age of eternal happiness. And verse 4 of our passage, Paul says, you who are trying to be justified by the law. He's saying, those of you who are are trying to work all your days in this life in order to build up enough points so that when you get to that divine assessment, God will say, um, you have have obeyed everything I said. You've done it all. Uh, You have obeyed the divine law of God. A circumcision is part of that. And, And if you want to go that way, well, if you go that way, you've got to go all that way. Now, circumcision is just part of the requirement. There are lots of other requirements. But if you want to go that way, it's to say, um, I think I can do enough to pass God's final inspection. But Paul says, if you go that way, verse 2, Christ is of no value at all. Verse 4, if you go that way, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Because there is a different way. Verse 5 says, Through the Spirit, we eagerly wait by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For through the Spirit, we eagerly wait by faith the righteousness for which we hope. This verse, again, is looking forward to that, that final divine assessment. And it looks forward to it and eagerly expects that the outcome will be a verdict of righteousness. We are waiting eagerly, by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. And what is the expectation based upon? Well, this way is not the way of the law. It's not that somehow someone will manage to get through life without ever slipping up, without ever doing anything wrong. Someone will get it right all of the time. That is a bonkers way of thinking. This is not that way. No one can do that way. This expectation is based on what it says in verse 5. It is through the Spirit. What's already happened, as Paul said in the last chapter? He said God sent his Son into the world. He sent his son to stand in the place of people who cannot do good all the time. 
And he sent his son to suffer the penalty deserved by such people and to give them a share in his own perfect obedience. Christ came to redeem us. And we benefit from everything he's done when the spirit of Christ applies to us all the benefits of Christ. The spirit of Christ who binds us together with Christ into a a spiritual union. He says in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, spiritually we are in Christ Jesus through the spirit. And that then means that at the final divine assessment, we will receive a verdict of righteousness. And and that assessment, the condition of that assessment, that decision will not be based upon our moral performance. That decision will be based on Christ's moral performance. That's why it's by grace. We eagerly and confidently expect God to give us everything when we deserve nothing. And it's because of Christ. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. All the benefits of Christ come to us by faith. All the benefits by faith. And and it opens a door here to such inexpressible comfort. Now when we trust Christ, we can be sure that God God will never treat us as our sins deserve. God will never be angry with us. God will, will, will be with us. He will stick to us as a friend and as a father. And he will be for us in every moment. And he will defend us. And he will keep us. And he will deliver us through this life and into the life to come. And w- when we struggle with that, because we do struggle with it. And when we, w- when we would like to feel that certainty a bit more, which we do, don't we? We would like to feel that this is real. Uh, Martin Luther spoke about this. He, he wrote writing in the 16th century about how we would, he says, that when we would like to feel God's favour more than we feel our own failing. We would like that, wouldn't we? We feel our own failing. But when we'd like to feel God's favour more than we feel our own failing, we remember our status before God rests on something better than our feeling. And we live in certain hope, not inconsistent feeling. Certain hope that that decision of the last day has already been revealed to us, that by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, our eternal happiness is secure. Paul is writing to these Galatians and saying, if you want to stand firm in this freedom, you have to understand there are just these two ways to live. You can go the way of circumcision or the way of Christ. That is, he's saying, you can rely on your own efforts or you can rely on Christ's efforts. And there's no third way. There's no third way. But, you know, we, we have to ask, don't we, what was the attraction of circumcision? Now, when, when these teachers turn up to Galatia and they say, do you know what? You have to be circumcised. How does that conversation go down? In the, the last couple of years with the with the kind of COVID crisis and, and, and the vaccines coming in, there are some people who, who, when they've been told you need to have a vaccine, have said, oh, I'm, I'm not sure because it might hurt. This isn't vaccination they're talking about, and there isn't any real anaesthetic. No, no, 
Why would they be keen to even think about this question? What is the attraction of circumcision? Well, in verses 7 to 12, it gets a bit more personal. Paul gets a bit more intense. He says, verse 7, you were running well. You were trusting Christ, but who has thrown you off? In verse 10, he says, whoever is doing this, whoever is, is throwing you into confusion, they are doing something terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. By encouraging you to be circumcised, to trust your circumcision rather than trusting Christ, they're putting you in the danger of losing everything. I think, though, Paul mentions um, two reasons why the Galatians might be attracted by the idea of circumcision. Uh, The first one comes in verse 9, a little um, saying, really. Verse 9 says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little yeast. It it, it seems like the Galatians could be thinking, this isn't that big a deal, is it, really? It's just a little development. Maybe that's what the false teachers are saying. It's just a little bit extra. It doesn't make that much difference. It doesn't change the fundamentals. It's just a little thing. But but Paul says a little yeast. It doesn't take much yeast for the whole batch to be affected, for the whole batch to be full of it. And Paul's saying your first step away from Christ may be a little step. Your first step on that road may just be a little step, but if you give that time, one little step after another, and you find there is no Christ left. They might not think it's a very big departure, but Paul's saying there are only two ways, and you can't go both ways at the same time. You know, I, I don't think that, that, that anybody makes a plan to stop believing in Jesus, and yet there are many people who at one point said they believe in Jesus, and now today say they don't. Nobody makes a plan to do that, but how does it happen? It's a little yeast. Something that seemed small, but it was a step away from trusting Christ, and there are only two paths. Circumcision might have been an attractive thing because it didn't seem like a departure. It didn't seem like a big thing. It was small. But Paul wants to show them the danger. He wants them to look deeper into what they are doing. Uh, why might it be attractive? Because it seems small. The second reason. There's nothing there. Um, verse 11. Uh, in verse 11, it looks like the, um, one of the things the false teachers might have been saying in Galatia is um, our message is really the same as Paul's message. No, no, perhaps when Paul came to you in Galatia, he didn't have enough time to teach you about circumcision, so we're just going to kind of fill in the gaps. And if he'd been here for longer, he would have told you all of these things. No, no Paul says, no. <laughs> if that's the case, why am I still being persecuted so much by those who advocate the need for circumcision? And, and then he says this. In that case, verse 11, if he was supportive of circumcision, the offence of the cross has been abolished. The offence of the cross. The cross is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ dying for our sins in order to redeem us from the curse of this life and bring us into his eternal happiness. That is an offence, deep offence. And the reason is this. What the cross says to us, says to all of us, it says we are not able to do this ourselves. If we want to understand how sinful we are, We need to look at the cross, because there we see what God says it takes to save us from our sin. 
Oh, the cross is it's an assault on our human pride. Uh, one commentator says, The cross lays us bare before God and exposes our wickedness and evil. When the message of the cross breaks upon the human consciousness, we either repent or are enraged at such an affront to our egos. See, this is what makes the idea of circumcision attractive. It makes us feel better about ourselves. That's what it does. It it, it tells us we can do something to earn God's blessing. We can deserve it. We We can get that pat on the back telling us how wonderful we are, telling us how well we've done. And we want that feeling. We want to be celebrated. We want to think that we are capable people. We want to think that we're able to to sort ourselves out. We don't want to have to rely totally on someone else. We want to think that we can stand on our own two feet. We want to believe in ourselves and trust ourselves and think we can do it. Circumcision offers self-confidence. And is that so bad? Don't we just need a little bit more a little bit more self-confidence, isn't that a good thing? It's just a, isn't it just a little thing if it just gives us a bit of a boost? No, we wouldn't do that with circumcision today, but we could easily latch onto something else. We could maybe think about our coming to church. Because no, we can do that, can't we? We can come to church most weeks. We can make sure we get out of bed and, and come along. And we, and we begin to think, you know what? I'm doing pretty well, aren't I? Because I haven't, haven't missed many Sundays. And look how well I'm doing. And And I begin to build my security in my performance. Or maybe just being kind to people. We can can do a bit of that, can't we? We can can help out other people, and that's a wonderful thing to do. And and actually, helping out other people can have this additional benefit that it makes us feel better about ourselves, because we think, I can't really be that bad when I'm doing this good. So maybe I don't need to worry so much about what God might think. In fact, God's probably pretty pleased that he's got me on his team to help him out. And slowly we begin to build our security in our performance. We could go on listing all kinds of good things. Circumcision was a good thing. It was a gift from God. Church attendance, being kind, they are good things. And we should be doing good things. But it's a little yeast. We should be doing good. But it does matter why we do it. Verse 12 lands a killer blow. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He's saying they want to chop off the foreskin. I wish they would chop the whole thing off. It's a horrendous thing to say. It's an awful thing. It's crude. It looks like Paul has lost it at this point and he started cursing. And yeah, I think the shock of what he says goes even deeper. Let let me explain what I think is going on here. Uh, Paul writes to these places of Galatia uh, that were kind of pretty pluralistic. I think we would describe the kind of dominant worldview as being pagan. Uh, Pagan religions were, were all about. And there was this cult in the area which people today call the Mother Goddess Cult. It had lots of different names at the time, different names in places, but there was normally a kind of female goddess that people worshipped and she ruled. And there were a group of priests who were kind of appointed to serve her. And, and these priests, in order to serve her, had to be completely emasculated, totally dismembered. Um, and, and the worship practices that they engaged in were, were grossly immoral. Even by the standards of the day, they were, they were labelled as being immoral. 
And, and for the Jewish people, especially the Jewish people, they, they would see these things as being just the worst of the worst. It was utterly debauched, totally abhorrent. Now, when Paul says about those who are teaching a necessity of circumcision for salvation, that's what he's teaching, isn't he? The Galatians are tempted to think they have to be circumcised to be accepted by God. Paul says those who are are teaching this, they might as well go all the way and emasculate themselves. And the implication is this. The implication is that there is no real difference between choosing the way of circumcision and these detestable pagan rituals. There isn't a third way. Now, no, people can try to worship false gods with abhorrent practices, or they might try to appease the true God with their good deeds. Paul says these are all just species of the same kind. Both are ways of trusting yourself and not Christ. Both ways will never end in eternal happiness. They are both ways of slavery. You remember what we saw about slavery last time last week? That, that slavery is when you put in loads of effort, you put in all the effort, and at the end there's nothing. That's what a slave does. Works and works and works and then there's nothing at the end. Now you can put your effort into pagan self-mutilation. You can put your effort into religious performance. But they're both forms of slavery because they both will reward your efforts with nothing. It is the same path. And it is for freedom Christ has set you free. Now, when you trust Christ, Paul has said, you are, you are not slaves anymore. You are sons. You are children of the living God. And children receive the inheritance because they're children, simply by being children, not because of how they perform. Now, if you want to get the shock of verse 12 into kind of our contemporary way of thinking, if Paul was writing to us today, he might say, you who say you must go to church to be saved, you might as well go to the brothel. It's appalling, isn't it? No, you who say you have, to, you have to do enough good deeds to earn your salvation, you might as well go on the dark web and hire a sex slave. It's abhorrent, isn't it? The difference is the difference of the offence of the cross. It is going your way or going Christ's way. You trust yourself or you trust him. There are millions of ways to trust, you, to trust yourself. Millions of ways, but it's, it's all the same way. It all ends in tragedy. There's only one way to trust Christ, and that ends in life. And so what does Paul say to the Galatians in verse 10? He says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. Confident. All the urgency, all the warning is all intended to help keep them trusting Christ. Paul said he is confident of this for them. But he didn't write to Kingfisher, did he? He's confident about them, but he didn't write to us. Now, what will the warnings that he gives do for us? Now, we're just going to brush it aside. The dinner's cooking. Time to get on. We've got, things, we've got other things to think about. Or will we seek for these warnings to help us keep trusting Christ? And NASA missed something on the Challenger. Something so small that caused something so tragic, but they didn't make the same mistake twice. And Paul says it's just a little yeast. It it might be things that look small, but a shift away from Christ and something so small might cause something truly tragic. Now that small thing will be anything, anything that we allow that makes more of us and less 
of Christ. But how would we know? How do we stand firm in the freedom Christ has given us and not be burdened by the yoke of slavery? Today's passage says, to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given, you have to understand there are only ever two ways to live. You are only ever doing one of two things. You are trusting yourself or you are trusting Christ. So let's go back to those two conversations I mentioned at the start. Now that second conversation, that Wednesday mid-morning arbitrary everyday moment, uh, you're just doing whatever you do and somebody taps you on the shoulder and interrupts you. And they say, now that I've interrupted you, now that I've got your attention in this moment, as you pause to think, what does Christ mean to you? The point is, how much do we value all of Christ for all of everything? We're not going to make much of Christ if we don't think we need much of Christ. And we might be content to give him a few Sundays and a few moments, but but we'll keep the rest to ourselves, thank you very much. And and we do it because we don't think we need him completely. Functionally, we act as though we can manage by ourselves. We're happy to plough along that road. But the looming offence of the cross is that we can do nothing without Christ. The cross offends us. Because the cross looks at all the good that we ever do and it it stacks it all up and it says, none of that counts for your salvation. Can we do that? Can we look at our best? The very best we do and say, I will not trust any of it. That's the offence of the cross. The offence of the cross also cuts the other way, doesn't it? The offence of the cross says, I can look at all the bad I have ever done. I can look at the vilest of thoughts and the cruelest of deeds and I can stack it all up and I can say, none of this comes between me and Christ. Christ must have all of us and we must have all of him. What does he mean to you? Not, Not just on a Sunday, not just on your best days, but in the dark days and in the ordinary days and in the boring days. What is Christ to you? John Stott wrote, we resent his intrusions. Why can't he mind his own business, we ask petulantly, and leave us alone? To which he instantly replies that we are his business, and he will never leave us alone. He is a threat to us. He undermines our authority. He strips away all of our self-confidence, and he says, you take away your self-confidence and have me as your confidence, and have only me, and I will be enough for you. What is Christ to you? Uh, Paul was confident about the Galatians that when they heard these warnings, he was confident that they would say, he is all the world to me and more. My best cannot save me. My worst cannot damn me because Christ is all to me. Confident that the Galatians would say that. What about us? What about you? What is Christ to you? And then that other conversation, that last conversation we have in this life, that deathbed conversation. A guy called Anselm lived in the 11th century. He visited St. Neots because there's a road in St. Neots named after him near Waitrose. Now I run past it and often think about him. Um, he, he wrote about some instructions for deathbed conversations. He said this, when you go to someone on their deathbed, you ask, do you believe you cannot be saved apart from by the death of Christ? 
And if the sick person says, yes, I believe this, then you say, well, you go while there is still breath in you and put all your confidence in Christ's death. Don't trust anything else. Commit yourself completely to his death for you. And if God judges you, say, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and your judgment. And if God says you are a sinner, say, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and my sins. And if God says you deserve hell, say, I put the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between you and all my sins and I offer his merits for my own. And the instructions go on and on and on like that, clinging confidently to the cross of Jesus Christ. So when Kyle and Brittany were on that aeroplane last year with engine failure, told to brace, ready for a crash landing, and Kyle says to Brittany, what is your comfort? And what would you answer in that moment? Now in that moment, what is your comfort? Do you look back on all of your accomplishments in life? The, the things that we've done, the things we've achieved. Is, is that where we find comfort in that moment? That's what Paul warns against. What is your comfort? This is what Brittany answered. She said, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in both life and death to God and to Jesus Christ, my Savior. And then Kyle said, did you do anything for God to save you? And she said, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Christ did it all. Let's take a moment and ask ourselves how we will respond to the warnings of this passage.